Hello, I'm Linda Burrows. And I'm Peter Mayland. And welcome to Trust Education. Trust Education is a podcast which explores the world of education in Academy Trusts. Academy Trusts have become the majority school providers in England over the past decade. In our, pa- in our past two podcasts, we've taken a look at belonging and embedding formative assessment and how we as a trust have taken these ideas from Owen Eastwood and Dylan William and started to embed these. This week, we are going to take a step back and talk about how academies have developed in England and over the past 20 years, and in particular, how academy trusts have grown. We'll also discuss how trusts are managed and led. So Peter, can you give us an overview of how academy trusts came about? Alinda, yes. Um, so a- academies um, were first introduced into into England under the Labour government um, in the kind of uh, 2000s uh, or thereabouts, and um, it was really with a small number of schools. I think by 2010 there were about about 200, 230 uh, sponsored academies, as they were. Uh, really, um, the Labour government focused on putting a huge amount of uh, money and transformation into uh, schools, perhaps in highly disadvantaged areas, uh, perhaps with um, relatively poor um, Ofsted grades uh, or poor outcomes for students uh, in an attempt to really kind of transform those schools and and those communities. Uh, They often came with with sponsorship, Uh, so this may have been um, a company or organisation that worked with the school, um, and additional funding, and, and very often with a new building. Um, so really uh, kind of exciting but very um, heavily subsidised um, uh, change to that school community. Um, and then from 2010, when the uh, Conservative-led coalition government uh, came to ca- came to power, um, the, 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 that government really kind of saw this as an opportunity to um, really kind of change the educational landscape and bring a lot more independence into the English school system. Um, so up until that point, the, the sponsored academies, they'd been directed, it's been, the government had, uh, had, had a high hand in sort of choosing the schools. But from, two, from 2010 onwards, any school, any school could choose uh, to convert. So it's essentially uh, the decision of uh, the governing body uh, of a school. And um, through a mixture of charity law and company law, uh, schools were allowed uh, to convert into academy status. And very quickly, from 2010 to 2012, um, several hundred um, uh, schools uh, converted. And um, that growth has then continued over the last um, 12, 13 years now. Um, so of the around about 24,000 schools uh, that there are in England, uh, about 11,000, uh, maybe a little bit more, are now, are now academies with about 10,000 of those uh, academies actually working in, in groups of schools or trusts. Um, and there's the, the majority of those trusts will have around about seven, seven to eight schools, but um, there are a significant number now, maybe I think about 70 uh, trusts with, a, with 20 or more schools uh, in them. So um, trusts are, are kind of very diverse in terms of uh, size and scale and location. Um, but that's the kind of the, the brief history. Okay, great. So, thinking about you know um, listeners today wondering you know um, why would you you know what's the benefits of you know of becoming um, or going into an academy trust? Um, but what what do you see as the you know as as 
the main benefits of you know of working in an academy trust, a school going into an academy trust. Okay, well, well, perhaps before going into that, um, maybe talk a bit. I'll explain a little bit more about um, maybe the context of how trusts operate and how they're perhaps different from yeah. uh, maintained school. That is local authority uh, maintained school schools. Mm. Um, so the Department for Education has direct oversight over an academy uh, or, or a trust. Um, which also comes with direct funding. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily any more money, but it just means a little bit more freedom about how that money is spent. Um, and it also means that the, the, the trust gets the entirety of this um, of the funding, whereas with maintained schools, uh, it will be the local authority to decide how much of that funding goes directly to schools. Now, to be fair, most, uh, main, most uh, local authorities would delegate virtually all of the funding through to schools, but they would also retain uh, a certain amount at, um, at local authority level. With a trust, it's very much all the money goes to, to that trust. And again, with some trusts, they will also decide um, you know, uh, that some of that money might be kept uh, held centrally um, to fund certain um, kind of consistent um, sort of approaches um, and, and systems um, so it can have a very similar sort of funding model, but the funding goes straight to the school or, or the academy or the trust. Um, there's also kind of more direct oversight um, on academies as well. So because it's direct D, uh, Department for Education oversight or DFE oversight, uh, and the number of trusts and school and academies now in, in the UK and certainly in England, um, they, you know, they can't all be managed uh, directly from London. So um, the DFE about 10 years ago created um, something called uh, regional school uh, commissioners um, which are now been renamed regional directors so they've, they've split uh, England into different regions so you've got the southwest you've got London you've got the southeast um, you've got the northwest and so on uh, and each of these has a regional director so this is an appointed person um, usually with a significant amount of educational experience perhaps a head teacher or somebody's worked um, at a high level in a in a trust, um, and they are they they are kind of the, the named person in that region, and they have a, and they and their team have a kind of direct contact with uh, academy trusts, and they're also supported by an elected body, uh, uh, what's called an advisory board, and again they tend to be elected from um, school leaders, so typically it is head teachers, um, and and big part of their role is around deciding on um, schools becoming uh, academies uh, from, uh, from now on. So if a school applies to become an academy or has to become an academy because there can still be directions from the Department for Education. For example, if a school receives a very poor uh, Ofsted grading, it can be directed um, by the Department for Education. It is the regional director now that, that manages that. But the regional director's responsibility goes a bit further than that, um, so it's it's often around school improvement as well, uh, particularly uh, relating to to academies. So that's kind of the DfE um, sort of oversight, but internally, uh, governance within uh, within academies is slightly different to governance within schools. So um, within schools, we've long had a tradition of um, uh, voluntary uh, governors. Um, and these are made up of um, some staff, um, some parents, um, and often people from um, from the local authority. So, so maybe councillors, uh, but maybe other people who kind of work with the local authority or just known uh, within that community. 
um, within an academy trust, there are uh, additional levels um, that have been added um, into that governance. So there are essentially three levels of, of governance. So the, the first of those is what are called members. And this, this goes back to what I said a moment ago, um, that in 2010, when the Academies Act um, under the coalition government uh, was written, they looked at um, an element of charity law and, and company law. And within that, companies have to have shareholders. Or, or, or not have to, but, but do often have shareholders. So the members kind of um, are indicative shareholders, if you like. Um, so again, these will be uh, volunteers, um, often three to five people, um, and they will um, meet as part of um, uh, this, this kind of representative group uh, on, a, on an annual basis, uh, and they may be in touch with uh, uh, throughout the year, but there's an annual meeting uh, that they will attend to be kept up to date uh, with certain things. And they um, have kind of got the ultimate say over who are trustees. And then a trust board is, is really where the authority sits. Uh, and again, in, in company law, we might be thinking about company directors. Um, now, trustees in, um, in an academy trust aren't paid. Again, they are all, all volunteers. So think more about governors um, than thinking about shareholders and, um, and, and kind of paid directors that, that, you know, that they won't be paid. Um, so volunteers... Um, but they have um, the, all of the kind of the authority um, instilled in the trust board, and one of their first jobs really as a trust board is to decide on um, sort of delegation. Who do they give the authority to? Uh, and this is really important because again, stepping back to maintain schools, um, maintain schools have been developed over over uh, decades, uh, well probably well over a century actually and their kind of authorities and uh, ways of operating have been enshrined in multiple laws over that time. So head teachers of a maintained school, governors of a maintained school, local authorities of a maintained school have really well established legal responsibilities that sit with each of those uh, different people. But with academy trusts all the authority is now gone to the trust board. So the members effectively select the trustees uh, the trustees have that authority and then they delegate it out. Right. That's an awful lot of responsibility for uh, volunteers, mm. isn't it? So do they then decide who they can pass that authority on to? So what does that look like? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a really important document um, uh, which is exactly what that, uh, they would um, they would uh, decide who gets who gets what authority. What do, what do they need to retain? And there's a lot of guidance around all this, as you can imagine. Um, so the Department for Education uh, provide um, uh, kind of very clear guidance around recommended responsibilities. Um, but that scheme of delegation, as it's called, so it's kind of a written document that says that um, you know, it is the trustees' responsibility to do X, but the trustees can change some of that, so um, they would delegate some things to um, local governors. Um, and some um, some decisions to head teachers, some decisions to uh, executive members. So, for example, uh, the chief executive officer of a trust, um, and they would decide where that sits. Um, they can also have obviously kind of committees or subcommittees of a trust board and delegate certain decision making uh, to a particular group of trustees. 
And that, as you say, that, that is an, a, a major responsibility, but it's a collective responsibility uh, of a trust uh, board. It, it, isn't, it doesn't sit with any individual um, sort of trustee. Um, so you know, that guidance from the DfE uh, and that guidance from uh, other agencies as well. Um, so there's very strong legal um, guidance available to trustees um, about what to do, when to do it. Um, all of that is available to them, and of course they then guide it through um, their responsibilities uh, by the by the executive team. So so these are then the paid staff, uh, people like myself and, and yourself, who will actually you know, kind of inform trustees about what decisions they need to make and when. Um, and we also have external um, staff, uh, sorry, uh, colleagues who, who help with that. Uh, so, for example, we have financial auditors, uh, we have an external legal team as well. So they can all provide that guidance to the trustees so they're not making those decisions in a vacuum. Okay, so am I right in thinking that the scheme of delegation um, can look slightly different depending on um, you know, with the trust and the trustees and members. Yeah, ab absolutely. So, um, so, so in our trust, we made a deliberate decision that we want to have uh, local governing committees. And you know, I think most trusts do have local governing committees um, or local uh, governing bodies. Um, and sometimes, well, again, uh, by default, uh, all of the responsibility, all the decision making, would sit with the trust board and the local governors would really just be an advisory board perhaps working with um, the head teacher in the school. Um, our trust board have actually delegated some decision making responsibility to our local governing committees in our schools because um, they feel it's really important that the, the local governors um, are the local by, by, by name and should be um, local in their role so they have a very kind of strong uh, focus on um, school performance um, behaviour of, uh, uh, of children in school, academic outcomes for children in school, what teaching and learning looks like in school, but also um, the sorry the, um, uh, the 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 kind of local community as well, and what the school is doing within its local community. So they've got delegated responsibilities in our trust around the policies relating to those uh, elements, um, but the, the trust board also take an attitude of delegating as much as possible as far as possible um, so some of those uh, some of those policies are delegated to head teacher level um, so that the head teacher can actually very kind of quickly respond um, to the needs of their school but obviously communicates that with the local authority the local governing committee rather uh, and the trust board okay and is, is the scheme of delegation re re reviewed so I'm just thinking if you know new skills or trust growth you know came, you know new skills came into the trust is that scheme of delegation review so it's not you know it doesn't it's not stuck in stone is it it's you know it's uh, yeah ab ab absolutely yeah so again in our trust we, we're constantly kind of talking about the scheme of delegation to make sure that it works well for the schools for the head teachers for the local governing community and, and for the trust board itself because it needs to work for all of those groups um, because accountability is, is really important um, but swift decision making um, is really important um, as well. So that document is, is um, discussed, pulled apart, um, tweaked uh, on a very regular basis and I imagine that's the case in, in most trusts. Okay, thank you. Fascinating how it's all put together. So Peter, I know that you have worked in, you know, of your career in both maintained sector and uh, the trust sector, you know, to date. So thinking about that, what would you see are 
you know benefits of academy of you know being an academy trust um what would you see the benefits are mm, yeah well in, in, in 2010 i was i was in a, a school that um was didn't work uh, it didn't work against the local authority but really kind of worked and felt independence uh, pretty much of its of its local authority so very much kind of worked with it but um was was it was quite keen, and this was um, the the head teacher, the governors were really quite keen when um, the, the, that, that bill came around and the academy's bill came around that actually that school could perform better um, independently. And sort of going through that process at that time, and just seeing how some of the decisions that the school could then take um, um, really kind of convinced me that the. You know, that, that having a focus on school improvement and having greater flexibility around where you got your services from, which companies you allied uh, uh, allied with, um, rather than having to sort of buy into a kind of collective group of services that the local authority decided on um, for that school, and I'm sure for many other single academies that converted at that time, I think was was really powerful, and it meant that um, that the school was able to make um, two or three really significant changes um, in about three year period uh, which really helped to improve its performance around quality teaching, around curriculum and around uh, opportunities uh, for children which I think would have been much more difficult for it to achieve if, if it had remained um, a, a maintained school within that local authority. So that was kind of my experience back then and, and now having worked um, in our trust uh, for a number of years and Again, just seeing how um, you know, we've got our schools kind of working so closely together. I think the key thing for me is that you know, trusts have got really one focus, which is you know, having high-performing schools. Local authorities have got a really uh, broad set of responsibilities. Uh, and whilst I've no doubt, and I do know uh, a number of um, colleagues who work uh, in local authorities and provide really good school um, support, um, actually, as a local authority, as a body itself, um, it's got a lot of responsibilities that go beyond managing schools. So I think, generally speaking, um, moving to a trust um, sector is the right way to go because it means that trusts can really focus on improving education and local authorities can really focus on uh, some of their other core responsibilities, which they have to. And, and I would think that for, for, for local authorities, the, the key priorities really should be around safeguarding mm. and that's not to say of course that schools and academy trust shouldn't concentrate on safeguarding yeah. it's obviously it's everybody's responsibility but that 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 global um, local authority oversight of, of uh, safeguarding I think is, is paramount uh, and also school attendance as well uh, and by that uh, admissions ensuring school places uh, are allocated um, fairly um, so I, I think that's where local authorities can really excel and where their expertise uh, should be um, and school improvement um, can be much better suited um, and f fitted within school trusts. Okay, so can you talk to me a little bit about Academy Freedoms and how, the, how that works? Yeah, and so, so yeah, the term I suppose Academy Freedoms again was um, sort of banded around a lot in, in 2010 um, and I think there's been some, um, there, there's certainly been not erosion of this, but there's certainly uh, maintained schools have actually gained a lot of these freedoms uh, over kind of subsequent years. But um, 
It relates to um, things like governance that I've just kind of talked about. So actually, you know, the trust itself can decide its own governance. Uh, so say in our trust, we've decided to have local governing committees. Trusts don't have to do that. Um, but actually, I think that's a really powerful model, and I think it's very important to do that. Um, but there's freedoms around curriculum uh, as well. There's freedoms, uh, for example, around school holidays, length of term times. Um, there's freedoms around uh, admissions, so local authorities do become their own admissions uh, authority uh, as well for admitting children to school. Uh, there's freedoms around certain policies. So some maintain some maintained schools have to have certain policies. Um, academies don't always have to have those policies. Um, you know, generally speaking, as an academy, you would have those policies. A lot of those policies kind of relate to staffing, actually. Um, so you would have those because, actually, you'd, you'd, you, you want to do the best by uh, your staff. Um, but again, you've got some more flexibility about what those policies possibly look like. Um, and again, uh, pay as well, actually. Uh, academies as, a, as an employer uh, can have um, flexibility uh, around pay. Again, not something that, um, that we've exercised. We've, we've um, as a trust, have stayed with the recommended na national pay scales for support staff and teaching staff. Um, and that's served us well in terms of recruitment and retention of staff. But it, it is a flexibility that academies uh, can exercise. Um, but I suppose the biggest, uh, I think the biggest benefits are perhaps around um, how we think around curriculum yeah. and how we think about um, collaboration um, and, and sharing. And again, how we spend, uh, how we spend our money, um, and particularly investing, I suppose, in in staff, for example, pastoral staff who can really offer support for families. Um, and that, again, that's not to say that maintained schools wouldn't be doing this or local authorities wouldn't be doing this. But again, as a trust, we can really be flexible about how we use that pay to get the most bang for that book, to provide the, mo the best support for families um, and children where, where we need it to be. Um, so, for example, in our schools, we have a really strong dedicated safeguarding team that um, are really kind of working very closely together, although they, were, they serve different communities. They're learning from each other, um, and um, you know, they're working very closely together to really kind of sharpen their practice and really support uh, the families that that that, uh, that we support. Great. So you know, in our in our trust, our learning trust, um, you know, you touched on the academy freedoms of curriculum. Um, can you talk a little bit of how um, you know our trust has benefited from uh, you know from those freedoms? You know, training. Um, you know, pay, pastoral curriculum. Can you talk a little bit about what does that look like in, in our trust? Yeah, I think, I think one of the things we've done over the last couple of years is really invested heavily in um, staff development. Um, we want the very best education possible for, for the children um, and actually one of the, what, what all the research tells us, um, and this is internationally, is that you know, those highest performing schools, those highest performing education systems really invest very heavily in their teaching staff and their school staff um, and one one bit of evidence around um, really high performing countries um, sort of internationally uh, is around the amount of training uh, actually that, that teachers in particular receive uh, so typically um, around about 100, um, 100 hours uh, per, per year uh, as, a, as, a, as a kind of a benchmark and in England the kind of five um, inset days or training days, in-service training days that um, typically schools schools would offer um, 
is going to equate to around about 40 hours or thereabouts. So one of the things um, that, that we did with our Academy Freedoms is actually changed our holidays. Uh, and we did this in a couple of ways. So, so one was our, our term dates, really. Um, so that's provided us with, with 10 training days for staff throughout the year, um, distributed throughout the year. And um, what that means is that uh, our classroom staff can really get their heads together, can really reflect on a, a frequent basis, but do this together on the progress that the children are making, um, how they can teach um, better for this next half term. Um, and um, again, we can access some really high quality uh, external and internal uh, training to support them um, all together. Um, and that's come alongside um, also um, introduce or changing the, the um, uh, uh, the, the, where we have our holidays, so we have a two-week October half-term, for example, because whenever you look at the, the school terms, um, the autumn term from September through to Christmas uh, that we're in right now is, is disproportionately <laughs> a longer term. And, and what that means um, for, for, uh, for children and for adults working in schools is by the time they get to that October break, after about um, at least eight weeks, or tends to be eight weeks, um, everybody's really kind of worn out, the cold is starting to kick in. So actually having a two-week uh, break at that point is, we, again, we've seen uh, real benefits in terms of attendance because uh, fewer people are sick around that time um, and uh, everybody's kind of a lot more relaxed um, when they come back for the, um, in, in the kind of November after that break. So, so both of those freedoms around, I suppose, term time, holiday time to invest in staff training, but also to invest in uh, you know, getting the balance of holidays right um, it's, it's, it's been a real benefit. Great. So you know, looking at the training, the ten inset days, um, it's it, you know it's great. So what impact are you seeing um, in the schools? You know, what are the staff saying? Mm. Um, you know, how's that impacting on the children? Um, what what does that look like now? Yeah. So we've, so um, again, you know, staff really value um, that additional um, sort of time to work together. Mm. Um, and that time to uh, to kind of really reflect, and it was interesting when we when we raised this with with parents, and obviously we cons consulted on these changes with parents, uh, and the feedback was universally positive because I think parents kind of recognised um, that we were doing this for their children, um, to you know to provide their children with the best quality education, and to allow the teachers and the teaching assistants to really reflect on um, how the children have learned over this period. Um, so, so what we've been able to do is, is really overhaul um, uh, and improve a lot of what we're teaching, so really kind of thinking about our curriculum. Mm. And uh, the staff have been able to collaborate between the schools as well. Um, so, for example, we've had um, a, a maths uh, expert, um, maths lead from the primary uh, school working with um, secondary colleagues, uh, really looking into the detail of what is taught and how it's taught at Key Stage 2, which has really informed then uh, the math specialist at Key Stage 3, so that um, you know, the curriculum on offer and the way it's been taught um, has, has really been enhanced by that knowledge. Uh, and we've had the same thing uh, around science uh, as well, uh, but conversely, um, we've had a PE expert, um, a secondary PE expert, working with primary colleagues, uh, again, really kind of supporting them in the mechanics of high quality PE training uh, because in the primary sector um, all the staff tend to be great all-rounders mm. uh, and having that specialist uh, input can be again really really powerful. So 
that time and that investment and again that, that kind of close-knit approach that we've got in our trust um, has been really powerful yeah it's um the word investment um you know comes to my mind when i look at you know what it's like to be part of a you know academy trust um you know collaboration i've been fortunate enough throughout my career to be in schools that fully believe in collaboration um and that is happening here now you know in in the, in the trust um but the difference being is that um Everybody you know, who works in, in the schools are invested in their school, but also you know, the other school. And I think that's the difference mm. when you work within an academy trust. It's that investment, isn't it? That we really do care. You, know, you take away um, you know, the element of... Um... Yeah, I... I totally agree, and that you know that I suppose that that element of being able to walk away. Yes. I guess. Yes. That's um, and I'm sure you would never do that, but certainly, yeah. yeah when I've worked in in maintained schools, um, and, um, yeah, there's been some really strong relationships built up um, between colleagues in different schools. Um, but often those those relationships can kind of break down if a member of staff moves, yeah. or if the emphasis in school A suddenly becomes something slightly different, um, and. Um, you, you, you kind of can't continue to focus on that, but that investment because you, uh, we, we, are, we are the trust, uh, and this is something we always talk about. You know, um, we are a single team of staff. Uh, yeah, we work in, in different schools, we work with uh, different children, um, but our aim is the same, and you know, we're here for all of the children who, who come to our trust schools, and I think that's really, really important. Yeah. And it's removing that competition. That's the word I was looking for. Competition. Competition. Um, it, it totally removes that, doesn't it? It, um, it does. It does. So, Peter, finally, you know, looking back at your career and where you are now, if you had the opportunity to go back into the main sector as um, as a leader, would you? Um. I've, I've, listen, I've, I've worked. I've had a great career. Really enjoyed every school that I've worked in, and the majority of those have not been academies, actually. Um, but I think, as I said earlier, um, you, I certainly see the way forward and the futures as trust, tight-knit trust, working um, uh, work really closely together to to develop um, education in in their schools. Um, and I think that is not something which is easily replicated in the maintained sector and not universally uh, the case in, in the maintained sector and I think it, it's much easier for that to be a universal thing in, in, in the trust sector so I think now I'm more committed uh, to ensure that, um, uh, that our trust is the best that, that it can be um, but also to kind of share this and, and work with other trusts so I think I'm more committed now to the, to the trust sector uh, but that's not, not, not to say that uh, obviously every child didn't, uh, deserves uh, a really good education and that that isn't taking place, not saying that isn't taking place in, in great maintained schools around the country, I, I know it will be. Um, but I think for me what, what, I've, what I've seen over the past couple of years in particular, you know, how we're able to retain sc staff within our trust, there's a couple of staff recently who've want, you know, started working in um, secondary sector and wanted to uh, to move into the primary sector, mm. and uh, we've been able to maintain them within our within our trust, and actually that's really supported them. For for one, it, I know it's kept them within our profession actually, because I know that they were at risk of mm. um, leaving leaving schools altogether. But because they could stay within our trust, which 
uh, for them meant consistency of, of approach, consistency of some staff, um, and certainly um, a kind of consistency of, of, of expe you know, employment experience. That was really valuable to them. Um, but also think about the, the opportunities that we're developing for the children. Um, so just this last month, um, there's, there's been a, a fabulous mobile swimming pool um, uh, at Jordan Road, um, and some of our oh, year seven weaker swimmers have, have really mm. sort of uh, had a great opportunity uh, after school to, to, to participate in that. Uh, and historically, we've had um, our drama GCSE students working with our key stage uh, two students, and um, you know, we've got staff now planning joint um, STEM activities at science, technology engineering and maths activities for later this academic year. And again, that investment um, that you talked about, being able to do all of those things um, within the maintained sector, let's say, uh, I think all of those are possible, um, but they're not necessarily all probable in a single school or, or in a couple of schools. Um, so I think for those reasons alone, um, I think I'm very committed to, to the trust sector. Thank you, Peter. It sounds it's all very exciting. I think Albion Learning Trust is at an exciting point, um, and it's I'm uh, looking forward to uh, what the future uh, brings. So thank you so much, um, Peter. Thank you, Linda.